It's the Ride All Night Podcast, with stories of friends and family of the band from Good Homes. Started during the pandemic of 2020 and continuing until we're done. Thank you, we're trying some new things here. Okay, here it comes. We've got a million people to thank. Today on the podcast, we welcome Tim Carbone. Tim is mostly known these days as the violinist, vocalist, and electric guitar player for Railroad Earth. Tim was a founding member and has been along for the ride since day one. And that ride now spans over 20 years. Tim has had a long, diverse career, starting as a working musician at the age of 17 and producing his first record in 1986. Prior to Railroad Earth, one of Tim's most notorious bands to many of you East Coasters was The Fabulous Blue Sparks from Hell. And as quoted from Tim's website, toured continuously for 12 years from 1977 to New Year's Day 1990, when they began their highly profitable career of never playing together again. And a seemingly endless series of reunion gigs. After decades of experience creating music as an artist, songwriter, session musician, and producer, Tim says he may not be up to playing music live for the rest of his life, but you will have to pry his dead clammy hands off the mixing console. Safe to say, producing records is his passion. This was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tim Carbone. So what I thought is um, talking about just the music scene, the tri-state area, 60s, 70s, into 80s, 90s. So tell me a little bit about before, like, you were born in Long Island, right? Yeah, I was born in Long I was born in Huntington, Long Island, but when I was like three, almost four years old, I moved out further east. Uh, so I kind of grew up in a little town called Whitting River. Uh, and I, you know, I had a, I had a little basement band uh, back in the in the 60s when you know with my brother and some neighborhood kids we were called the Avengers we played uh, we played uh, monkeys songs and we played Rolling Stones songs and we played some a uh, little bit of Motown but you know we, we were pretty crappy were you a drummer I was a drummer yeah yeah I was a drummer and then so and then uh, a guy came on uh, moved onto the street with a full drum set because all I had was a snare drum and a, and a cymbal and so he got that we got him in to play drums because he had a real drum set. And then I moved, I basically commandeered my my parents' console organ from the living room mm. and brought it downstairs. And I started playing keyboards or organ, mm -hmm. you know, with it. My brother played guitar. There was another guitar player. We didn't even have a bass player. They switched off playing low notes because it wasn't really, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were kids. Yeah. And then I went uh, in high school. I was taking violin lessons. Uh, well, not really. I mean, I, I don't really categorize them as lessons because, like, it was like you know, in a class with like six or seven other geeky kids, uh, and then basically taught you how to hold it and sound the notes and put little pieces of tape on your neck to say, make sure your fingers go here because if they don't, it won't sound good, mm -hmm. you know. And um, yeah, so I never took any private lessons 
probably the only thing that I kind of have regrets about that. You know, it would have been very cool to take private lessons, but you know, oh well. <laughs> I'm essentially self-taught. Um, but you know, I, I, I picked up the harmonica. I picked up, actually the first thing I picked up besides drums was ukulele. I used to, me and my friend Davey Ball used to go wander up and down the beach and playing ukulele, the Don Ho songs and you know, like we've just listened to. And, um, and then I picked up the harmonica so I heard, uh, my older brother took me to see uh, the Butterfield Blues Band. Mm. And I was like, man, that's cool. So I, I bought a harmonica and I, I learned, I picked out how to play it and I was playing blues and I, I would go in the I would go in the school. So one day I went, I'm in high school. I get in my freshman year, right? And I'm in the I noticed the gym locker locker room sounded great. So I'm in there after gym, like kind of like just lollygagging and basically cutting the next class and just playing the harmonica. And so this other older fellow comes in for the next class and he hears me playing. He goes, "Oh, you sound good, man. Why don't you come jam with my band?" I'm like. Okay, I'm a new instrument. Yeah, like literally. So I'm like a freshman. I'm 14 years old, and he's a senior. Yeah. You know, so I go that weekend. I go out, and I'm with all of these old cat. You know, old. They're old. They're all like 17. Sure. You know, and so I played, and uh, and they 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 put me in the band. So I'm just figuring my way out how to do it. And uh, at the same time, I'm after school. I'm working at an at a radio station. Um, and you know, I'd go. I would go right after school. I would go. I could walk to the radio station. And mostly, it was just like sweep up, do this, recatalog. You know, put away al albums, get them, put them in a box, the, all the new ones, so that they were they weren't like just hanging mm. around. And so I did that. And then I would I would come back and take the late bus home. You know, mm. and that they would pay me with like, here are these records that we're not going to play on a radio station. Would you like them? Nice. And I'm okay. like, well. Yeah, man, totally. I mean, that's how I, I agreed to to, to, play, to do that. I did it for like three months. Yeah. But, you know, because I, I my, also my record collection went from four records to like a hundred records, you know. And one of the records I found in this box was this guy named Sugarcane Harris. And uh, I didn't know who he was. Oh, it was this, on the covers, this picture of this black dude playing electric violin. But like his, you could see the violin was kind of blurry. His hands were totally a blur, but his face and the rest of his body was like completely in focus. And I was like, that's a bizarre picture. Mm. And this black dude's playing the violin. I'm told, I want that, you know. And he was playing all blues on the violin. And so I basically, and he had a little pickup. I could see the pickup. So I, I could see it was like a Diorman pickup. I didn't know what it was. So I went to the music store and I said, you know anything about this Diorman pickup for a violin? And it was like, oh yeah, it's like a suction cup. We can order that. So I got that and I started playing electric violin I learned all I stole all his licks and I borrowed my brother's uh amplifier he had one of those it's a Fender Bassman uh old Fender early 60s this is a late 59 and uh and so I I brought it to one of the rehearsals once and I said hey guys I can do this so you were going to start with the harp with that I did I was playing with harp I as we traverse through the years like think of music and culture right so here yeah, yeah. you are late 70s now no, no, this isn't late 70s. This is like 72. Uh, oh, well, this was when, when I first started playing with that band, it was 1970. Okay. So think about, like, so you guys are jamming now. You're freshmen, they're seniors. And I know when you're that little, you're not, like, aware of what's happening in the yeah, world. Yeah. Well, I know. But now I, with hindsight, right? No, well, when I was 14 years old, I was, you know, protesting the Vietnam War with my older brothers. I mean, it was Nixon. Nixon was, a, was president. Mm. 
It's really interesting. I just listened to a Bruce thing. He described Thunder Road and he said, well, uh, maybe we're not that young anymore. And he's like, I'm 21. But he said it was post-Vietnam and you guys grew up fast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I was in that protest culture I, I, as a kid, as a four, 14. I, I, I mean, they, were gonna, they wanted to build a, a nuclear power plant in my, in my town, in, in Shoreham, Winning River. And we, all of us went down there and protested it. I mean, we put, we tied ourselves to the, to the, to the bulldozers and we got dragged away by the police. We weren't arrested, but they were like, you know, they literally dragged us away, which is kind of what we planned on doing. You know, let's see if we can get it in the news, you know? And, and eventually they, they did, they stopped that they stopped the plant Uh, of course it was already partially built, Mm. but anyway, I'm just saying that as like, I was in that culture as a, as a 14, 15 year old, I did all that, you know? And I'm thinking leading up into the 80s and what, what, you know, what's really interesting for me is kind of the origin of the jam band. I mean, you're now producing, I don't know if that can pigeonhole that, but you're like one of the early people in the evolution of the jam band. So like tracking the music and the culture up to the mid 90s, maybe when Jerry died. So I I was totally in that scene, even even in that that band that that I've joined in high school that I was in for for most of the like the three years until I was a a little until I was a junior, that band totally morphed into a psychedelic rock band. The guitar player went left, went to college. We got another guy. I got a, an Echoplex tape delay and everything just began. And, and I, you know, I was doing, as most of my other friends were doing a lot of LSD and smoking a lot of weed. And everything just went, wow! And then, so, like, you know, so I was in that where extended songs were like 10, 12 minutes long. But the bottom line is, like, I didn't know we didn't didn't call it jam bands and as a matter of fact i didn't know until railroad earth i didn't even know what a jam band was as far as i knew it was just music i didn't know what you know i I knew we i just called it rock and roll i don't know i know now that you know the grateful dead and you know allman brothers and you know other bands to a lesser extent and what we're doing essentially is kind of a continuation of that if you're just going to talk about the culture of the music people coming following bands multiple shows you know not buying records thanks a lot uh and um you know and just basically i'm i know i'm just gonna trade for tapes of shitty shows that sound like garbage isn't it great (laughs) it sounds like crap okay whatever but it's the scene right whatever it's the scene you know it was it was the culture you know and and uh i'm don't get me wrong i'm totally you know flattered and and psyched to be part of it because there's nothing like those fans because they're they're music junkies maybe they don't buy recorded music but they still go to shows a lot of shows and our and you know thank god that that still happens because sometime back in the 90s the music business was exploded by napster and basically most people aren't getting paid for their recorded music anyway so at least now we have you know people actually come and pay to see shows and you know and we have that. That's actually a really, really cool uh, culture that's developed around it, and uh, very kind. I mean, our fans, the Real Earth fans, are the nicest and most kind fans ever. I mean, it's like a family, and there's thousands of them all around the country. It's like pretty wild. Yeah. Shed the wild, noble tooth, doors of the bomb, smells 
After I got out of high school, I, actually I skipped my senior year and went to college, uh, and I met all of these guys in college uh, as a 17-year-old. They were in a band called Nebraska, and they were doing Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Flying Burrito Brothers, Commander Cody, all of these bands, and plus like Tunner Originals. They were all in their early 20s. Every band I was in back then, everybody in the band was three or four years older than I was. Yeah. I was always the kid, yeah. you know, including Blue Sparks from Hell for the most part, except for Andy Gessling. He was the only one that was younger than me. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, I'm sorry, tell me, you were playing with this college band. Where were you living then? Uh, Long Island. Still, still Long Island. Island. Okay. It's a band called Nebraska. Really good band. We were, you know, we played, you know, all over Long Island and in New York and sometimes upstate New York and sometimes in Connecticut, sometimes in New Jersey. Yeah. I got married and then that, that didn't really work out to the point where I tried to, I actually tried to make it work out right to the point where I like gave up playing music because my, my brand new bride, she met me. Uh, and I was always already playing in a band when she met me, and uh, we we fell in love with this band called Saint Elmo's Fire, uh, which was our, our lead singer Tucker, Blue Sparks lead singer Tucker. That was his old band, and actually Buddy uh, Buddy Miller was in that band. You know, the, Buddy Miller's a actually he's an A-list Nashville guitar player producer. He played in Emily Lou Harris's band forever. Incredible guitar player, a great producer. He was in the band. It was great. So, you know, we had that going and then we got married and then it was like, I can't really deal with you being in a band. And I was like, well, I'll try doing without it, you know, and then that didn't work. The moment I quit Nebraska, I started getting phone calls from other bands all over the island, like looking for a fiddle player. Until I got a call from like after about two, a year and a half, I got a call from a band in New Jersey and they offered me more money than I was making this job. And they were going to also like provide a house for the first six months I was in a band. So like, it's just sort of make the, the move smoother, you know? And I was like, okay. And I told, you know, I, I told her and she's like, all right, well, we'll go back and try and blah, blah, blah. The day before I was to leave, she said, I can't do it. I'm not going. And I was like, well, truck's packed. I'm going. And that was the end of the marriage. Yeah, she was, she was wise enough and kind enough and a beautiful enough person to say, you go do your thing. As a matter of fact, the night that I left, she said, I want to play you a song. And she played down this song called Love is a Rose. Love is a Rose and you better not pick it. You know? So um, she's like, I'm not going to pick the rose. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I joined a band called uh, Sawmill Canyon Band. And they were okay, but they were a total cover band. But they, got, they played all up and down the shore. They were a Jersey Shore band. They were making you know, a pile of money. Mm. We played the we played <laughs> we played the Great Gorge Bluegrass Festival out at the old Playboy Club, you know, right? Oh, yeah. And yeah. so it, there was the guys in my, in Sawmill Canyon, like they talked me into get getting in the fiddle contest, and I hate those, man. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. And I actually there was an old fellow, older fellow, that was you know he had a little suit and a tie, and he played like ter really traditional fiddle tunes, and he was great. And I thought he wiped the floor with me, but like somehow like we tied. So we split the $100 prize, and I took the $50 and bought my, all my bandmates drinks in the bar where we were playing like later on that night. Of course. And, and so, but there was a band on before us, and I'm looking at the band, I'm going like, 
these guys are outrageous, man. What the hell? I mean, I was like, oh my God, that's Tucker. And so when he came over, he he, he I think he, I saw him looking at me, and when they were done, he came over and they would and I it was Blue Sparks from Hell, but before I was in the band. And he goes, hey, Timmy, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, man, that was great, man. I had heard you were in a new band, but I didn't know anything about it. And now all of a sudden I'm here. He's like, yeah, we saw you we saw you in the fiddle contest, man. That was awesome, man. You want to join the band? I'm like, all of a sudden I was like, and luckily there was nobody in my current band that was like sitting around. And I was like, fuck yeah, I want to join that band. <laughs> no question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I gave my, they were go, we were going on, t taking two weeks off because the, the lead singer in Solomon Canyon was going on vacation. And like. I just like immediately like sent in my resignation and and the first gig I did with the Blue Sparks from Hell was opening for Seals and Cross at the Garden State Arts Center. Nice. Yeah. What year are we talking? It's nineteen seventy-eight. Okay. So now we're in the late seventies. And you know, the Blue Sparks we wound up being, you know, a band we did we played we did two hundred and fifty gigs a year for fifteen years. You know, in a in a Greyhound bus. We we had two different Greyhound buses on which we put a million miles on each one. It was We did like 4,600 and something gigs in those 15 years. And then we still played for another four years, but we didn't do, we kind of like backed off to like 100 gigs a year. I saw you in Gainesville, Florida. That was, that would be Rickenbackers. Rickenbackers, exactly. Oh, yeah, that's where I met my wife. Really? Oh yeah. Your now wife. My now, my now wife, yeah. Get out of here. Yeah, she's a Gainesville girl. Really? Yeah, I was living down there. My sister went to college there, and I went down there for a couple of years. And uh, said, "Oh, you got to come check out the Jersey Band." And I was, I was such a blast. Oh yeah, man, we used to like mid '80s. We used to we used to wreck that joint, man. We used to do like five, four nights there. We would do like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. And then we would always then we would go from there. Like usually we go right there straight to Sloppy Joe's in Key West and do and do a you know a, a four day run run there. Yeah. That was our thing. We would just go up to Maine. Out through all of you know the, the hinterlands of Pennsylvania, we would do you know uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, and then come back through the you know Cumberland, and we would do Roanoke, Western Virginia, over to Charlottesville, Richmond, Charleston, and then straight down. We did sometimes Savannah, Rickenbackers, all the way down, and sometimes we would go out to Austin. We played all the time. We would do five, six nights a week. I know that in the whenever maybe '80s, who knows when, but my experience, you know, from Good Homes, it was kind of the record deal was the kind of the grand reward. Were you guys looking at what was your motivation? Were you just performers on the road, bringing joy and love to those? Well, we won. We, the Blue Sparks from Hell. We won. We were the second band to win uh, CMJ's uh, Best Unsigned Band, and we got we got signed to a record contract with Epic Records. And then, as the moment we signed. To Epic, the the A and R, uh, the entire A and R department of Epic was flipped, and they were all fired, and we brought on all these new guys, and they didn't want to have anything to do with us. So we were signed to them for a year, and we couldn't sign. They wouldn't put, they wouldn't make a record with us, and they and they wouldn't allow us to sign with anybody else. So then after that period, we made we made our own record, uh, and we, we made two. Actually, we wound up being four records. Like when we, we did a we did a cassette first, and then we did an LP with a with a cassette. And then we wound up doing like two or three CD releases when CDs were invented. So you were still the record deal was kind of the the goal. Yeah. The goal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we also were into we were early video. Like we had, we had developed this TV show that we were trying to sell called American Jive Live. And uh, I mean, yeah, not crazy. I mean, Tucker was just a madman. We used to finish up with this crazy song called "I'm Mad." It was an old R&B tune by Willie Maybaum. When it was at the stand-up house, he would crawl up behind the drummer, like literally on that little 
windowsill. And he'd be going back and forth like this with the mic in his mouth, you know. The drummer would bow his head, Ed the dude, our drummer, would bow his head, and Tupper would jump off the, the, the windowsill and do a flying Dutchman into the audience. Four barrel, four nine, gas was down to 29. Four speed, buzz attraction, guaranteed some fast. Well, it's graduation day, I got a present I've been waiting to see. It goes by some letters and some numbers that mean nothing to me. My Japanese name like a menu selection I'm gonna turn the key Take my fake ID And get my first trick out of bar My big brother comes out and says hey, Watch that on the curb there, punk That's my new car I sang about in the first verse Weren't you listening? I was in school you wouldn't catch me Driving down Oriental junk By where the ground you shook So think about the 80s I guess maybe the kind of glimpse towards culture. How would you define the 80s? Well, the 80s, the 80s kind of morphed from like the marijuana culture to cocaine culture. And, um, and we were right there with it. <laughs> and uh, well, it was Reagan. It was uh, definitely, and Reagan led to, I got mine, fuck you. You know, and that's what it was kind of like, it. even the music business was sort of like that. I mean, I used to have this saying that uh, <laughs> people, <laughs> How do you get? How do you get to get a record deal? You know, well, here's how you get it. You have great songs. You have a lead singer that is immediately identifiable with his voice, and the moment someone hears him, you go like, "Oh, it's that guy from that band." You're extraordinarily adept at uh, self-promotion, like you're like savant at it, and you're and you're and you're and you're doing it like all the time. So if you have all three of those things, you have great songs, lead singer, totally identifiable, you're like, like amazingly crazy at self-promotion, and you have the most blind, dumb luck you've ever seen, like getting struck by lightning, bit by a shark on the same day. If you have all four of those things, then you get a lottery ticket. <laughs> That's how hard it was to get a record deal in the 80s. major way to North Jersey and uh, thinking about North Jersey as a music scene certainly back in the like 80s 90s and even now right 
culturally, right? That, that kind of trying to find that cultural thread, right? The 80s were greed. You said it well. Fuck you. I got mine. Yeah, yeah. What happened in the 90s? Did that just keep going? I mean, is well, that we, still that, where we're you at? You know, the weirdest thing is, is that in that area of New Jersey and, and, and spearheaded by the success of From Good Homes, we, that, we became like a little cottage industry of a, of a music scene all around, like uh, Sussex County and uh, Morris County. Oh, to a lesser extent, you know, around here, but as soon as you cross the river, then it still is the same. You cross it, there seems like there's a force field at the Delaware River. Like, you can't get Jersey people, like, oh, there's, there's Pennsylvania, and you're like, Pennsylvania's like, oh, there's New Jersey's over there. You know, it's it's like, a big energy in that gap, yeah. man. Coming in here, you can feel it. The oh, th that is 100% sure. As a matter of fact, if we went across the hall and opened up the window, you can see the gap from, from, from this floor. Yeah. Powerful place. And I'm right, we're in it. Actually, the, we're, this is the only recording studio that I know of that exists on the Appalachian Trail. It's right out front of the building. So that's awesome. So that, that cottage industry. And then who are some of the players in that? And what was that like? Then the, What was the music scene happening here? What, how did it manifest itself? Uh, well, there's all of these little bars and restaurants decided to have live music. And there was a record uh, store, uh, Sound Effects Music, that started a record label called Buy or Die. And they put out uh, Kings in Disguise records, Jack Tannehill records. Uh, they put out uh, they put out an early record of uh, Neil Casals when, when after Neil uh, did this first record, I guess for was it Warner's? I can't remember this first label that he was on. It might have been RCA. I'm not sure. But then uh, I guess he was a one and done on the major label, and he came and did a record with uh, Buy or Die. I knew Neil from when he was in Blackfoot, when he was 18 years old, because we, Blackfoot, we were big fans of the Blue Sparks from Hell, and we were big fans of Blackfoot, because they were from Hackistan. Yeah. And so we'd go see them, they would come and sit in with us, and then when, then when uh, Ricky left the band, they got Neil in. Mm. And it was like, who's this young cat, man? Holy shit, he plays, listen to that motherfucker. I mean, he was a, he was a badass when he was 18 years old. Mm. Yeah. You know. And he, he took that and ran, man. He, and so, you know, he was part of our whole scene. And uh, I guess who else? It was the Partners and uh, Alaskan. There was, uh, there was a bunch of bands. And, yeah, I mean, it was just... Bobby Sivarth. Yeah, Bobby Sivarth. Where was John Skeen at, at that time? John Skeen was I, I playing in a John band with, 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 Bo with, uh, with Bobby Sivarth. Uh, and and I, Ned. And Ned. And, uh, and uh, Ned Stroh. And, uh, and that band was called... Uh, it was the name of a place. Yeah, it was. A, uh, I have it written down too because I'm writing a book right now. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah. About the the history kind of. Thing? It's a it's a memoir slash autobiography. I don't know exactly. You know, from what I understand, a memoir is like a section of your life, mm. and autobiography is like you know. And so it's it's kind of more like sections, but like from my whole life. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. So it's a. Uh, it's a memoir biography. <laughs> it's an auto memoir. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so so that music and that was just happening all around. Yeah, no, it was insane. It was really great. And and like I'm gonna give you know a lot of the credit goes to we, we were all kind of grabbing on to the coattails of From Good Homes and also being pushed by the record label that we were all that that they put out all our music on CD, uh, Buy or Die. Nice. And, uh, and so it all kind of just made, and, our, and a local radio station, WNTI, which I had a radio show. I did a show on there for 12 years. And everything all... Was Paul in Kings in Disguise? Paul was in, Paul yeah. Mawson, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, what was the name of his band that they let, they all broke, well, Buck got, Buck got in a big accident. He was a, uh, went to jail. Buck, our guitar player who was in the Blue Sparks and also in Kings in Disguise. 
and then they all the, the whole rhythm section, Chris Farrelly and Paul Mawson and Jeff Borg, decided they were going to start this other band, and they were called. Yeah, I'm having a bad memory day, folks. It's a, Sorry. <laughs> it's a lot I, of details. I've had one cup of coffee. You got to give oh, me a break. Oh man, here. that's not acceptable. Yeah, yeah, we're no. past the noon hour. Yeah, yeah, I no, Like holy smokes. So speaking of passing the noon hour, oh, I don't know, man. I don't want to take oh, too much. Oh, harpoon daddies. Yes. Spike the ball. <laughs> we have success. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and it was great. it was a super great scene, man. That whole thing wouldn't have happened without From Good Homes. They led they led the charge. the origins of Railroad Earth, man. I mean, th so the music scene was still cranking along there. It was clearly, because you're jamming at Andy's house. Yeah, yeah, no, it was cranking along. Um, I was doing a gig with, uh, okay, so there's, Bobby Sivarth is a nexus, my, is my nexus, because one of the things that, right around the same time, within the, within the space of a year, uh, I uh, was playing a gig with him at the Wetlands, in the in the downstairs lounge, and and at the same time, John Scheme was playing that gig, and Carrie Harmon was playing per percussion and singing, or you know, Robert or drummer. And this fellow named Brian Ross, like, wanders through because he's there to see the Disco Biscuits because he has a a booking agency and a management company. So he came to see them, but as he's walking into the main room, he see he goes by that little circular staircase that goes down to the downstairs lounge. He hears the fiddle wafting up. Through there, that's because that, that instrument carries, and that's the only thing he hears. He goes like, "Oh, what's that?" Well, I'll go down and check that out for a second. He goes down there, he stands at the bar, and he stood, he stayed there for the whole first set. I go finish, go get a drink, and he comes over to me. He's like, "Hey, man, that was really cool." Uh, I said, "Oh, cool, man. Thank you. I'm glad you like it, man. What's your name?" Brian Ross. Like, what's your name? I'm Tim Carmona. He's like, "Oh, yeah." I, I just like stupidly was like, "Oh, cool, man. Like, what do you do? What are you? What's what are you about?" And he's like, "Oh, yeah, I'm a music supervisor because that's the other thing he did. He put music, songs in movies and TV shows." He said, "You know what what that is?" I was like, "Yeah, you're like somebody I need to know." <laughs> and so he, I, he was going to go upstairs and see the disco business, but our whole second set, like, I was, he was standing at the bar the whole time. Afterwards, I came over, I have another drink with him, and he asked me to get a card. I give him my card, he gives me his card. Totally forgot about him. Like three days later, he calls me up. He's like, hey man, it's Brian Ross. I'm like, Brian Ross. Oh wait, you're the dude that met at the, yeah, hey man, how you doing? Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 man. Um, you know, like if you ever wanted to do something, and like if you wanted to sort of another, like a band, like a jam band, or and like there's a sub subset of jam, band called Jamgrass, and I was like, ho, 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 like, what are you talking about? What's a jam band? What I, I didn't even know what it was. He told me, he had to, I was like, you don't know what a jam band is? I don't know, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. 
And then he gave me the whole rundown. Well, we're the Grateful Dead, this, this. And it was like, next thing you know, and then all of a sudden it became like a, every, from that point forward, for the most part, like about 20% of everything I heard or existed within or the environment that I lived in had everything to do with the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Prior to that, I didn't know shit about the Grateful Dead besides the fact that I saw the Grateful Dead in 1970 at Cernobic University when, when Pigpen was still in the band. And if, if I tell any deadhead in, in our scene that, they all just go, oh, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And like I jumped yeah. off the, tr the dead train in the, after Europe 72. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, I digress. And, uh, <clears throat> and so he started calling me all the time. Hey, you want to do this? You want to do this? Now, at that time, we were the Kings of the Guys were also Rick Danko from the band's backup band. We did maybe about eight, nine, maybe ten gigs with him over the course of a year. Uh, <clears throat> and so we were playing with Rick at the bottom line. And Brian Ross, the guy I met at <clears throat> at the Wetlands, he calls me. He's like, "Hey, I see you're playing the Kings of the Guys playing with." With Rick Danko, I'm a big band fan. I'm like, can you think you get my wife and I on the guest list? I was like, sure. And it was great. It was a great show. And that was the first time that Brian saw Andy play. And he was oh, like, Andy was in Kings in Disguise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Andy was in Buck. There was two players from, from okay. Blue Sparks from Hell. And the next day, I get a call. So who's that guy, Andy, man? He was great. You and him, man. You're the band. You're going to be the band. And I'm like... I don't know, man. I can't. And at that point, I was like, I was producing. I was knee deep in a record I was producing. I was bloking all these other gigs. And I was like doing a radio show. And I was like, I said, you know what? I'm just going to tell you, why don't you call Andy? And we'll just make this thing happen somehow. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But call Andy. So I foisted Brian off on Andy. <laughs> Andy was all about it. He grabbed it. He grabbed the ball on a 10-yard line. And, he, and he, he ran for the end zone on the other side of the field. They worked out, cooked up this deal where we were going to do like every, every week and a half or every, you know, a couple times a month, Andy would have these jam sessions at his house. And we would get whatever players we can grab that would be bluegrass players in the area and see who was going to be somebody that we could work with that would be great, you know, that would be fit into the swerve besides just Andy and I. And so that went through the whole summer of 2000. Brian had also, uh, for a brief period, was the booking agent for From Good Homes. So Brian knew Todd, and so John called, John Skian called Todd and said, hey man, we're doing this thing, man. And I think he had run into Todd at the at Gray Fox uh, Bluegrass Festival. And apparently Todd was like, you know, getting more into bluegrass music. And he's like, hey, man, I don't know if you're into this band, but why don't you come down and jam and sit in? And apparently, like, um, you know, then oh, Todd showed up in, like, September. And we did a couple of jam a couple of more jams at Andy's house. And at, at that point, the last people standing were me, Andy, Todd, and John. Mm. And it was like, and Brian had been coming to all of them, too, and playing some guitar, because he's a pretty good guitar player and a good singer, and he knows a bunch of songs. And so... Uh, he was like, we need to get a drummer. And I'm like, wait, we're doing bluegrass. Okay, drummer. Okay, got it. And then, um, but, and a bass player. So, because he figured like, this is it. This is the band. We just get a bass player and a drummer and, you know, we're, we're off the races, you know, Bob Drunkle. And I'm like, okay. So I realized that at, right at that moment, once again, Bobby Seibarth had decided at the last moment, like, oh, I'm sorry, guys, I'm moving to Florida with my wife. And all of a sudden, Carrie Harmon was without a gig. Uh, I call Carrie. Hey, Carrie. Want to play drums in his band? And then Carrie has this great high voice, and I thought he'd be perfect with Todd. And Carrie's like, no, man, I don't know, man. I don't want to get into the band thing. I'm just kind of just, I want to be like, you know, I'm just going to kind of just play, you know, gigs with people, like, you know, freelance. I don't want to be in a band. I was like, no, I'm like, completely lied. It's like, no, 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 it's not a band. 
we're just gonna do like a demo tape and we need a drum. And so I dragged him in, completely lied. And, um, and John picked, grabbed Dave Von Dolan, who I knew because he also wound up being the bass player just before he left for Florida. He was the bass player in Bobby Cyber Combo. Mm -hmm. So now we get Dave Von Dolan, but now we get the two guys from Bobby Cyber Combo are now our ry rhythm section. And that was the band. We, we made this, the, the moment we made the demo, Brian sent it out to Craig Ferguson uh, at the Telluride Bluegrass. He loved it and, and hired us to open the festival. Last question, um, because you do layers of strings, right? And also, and, and yep. the, musically, there's so much, and the way you, you know, you guys, Andy, Rest of Soul, and John, and it's just like this musical textural exploration. Yeah, texture is a good, textural is a good word to use. And then lyrics on top of that, how do you find, and this is a big question, but musically, where do you find yourself most rewarded? Is it in the, in the music or the lyrics or both, or how do, how do you find your happy place? Uh, it's kind of all of the above. I mean, I listen to, I'm a big lyrics guy, but I'm also, I, I need the melody. I need a good melody. I like unusual, like as far as my listening, I listen to all kinds of stuff. And usually the stuff that gets me is stuff that has elements of the melody, elements of good, of a good song craft, but also uh, little, uh, you know, sonic elements that, catch my ear, you know, and then, that's what I try to put in my productions, you know. I call them sonic events. And when I put in, I, I put in, I can play, in, I can play pretty much every record I've ever made. There's, a, there's at least three or four songs on that record that have bona fide sonic events. It's like a place where we're going to go for a second that has a different atmosphere. That's the kind of stuff I like, you know. Well, dude, I'll stop, man. I'll say goodbye because I could, I could talk forever, but any thoughts that you have? I mean, um, the movie is going to be about From Good Homes. The podcast is about you, and uh, it's cool to hear you're writing a book, and so you're kind of going through some of this historical stuff. But anything that we didn't touch on or anything on your mind now? Well, one of the things I didn't, uh, you know, for me personally, and, and I, I had mentioned it's kind of weird that you know, I, I, I fall upon Bobby Seibarth because he's like a nexus, because you'll get, like, you've, I've already mentioned him, and we grabbed Coat two guys out of there, and those two guys were in the band when Brian Ross saw it. And anyway, Seibarth, before Railroad Earth, before the, the, the whole episode at, the, uh, at the, the Wetlands, I did a gig. I was gonna, I came home from a gig in Woodstock, four hour drive, and I got home at like four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. I was exhausted, and for the only time in my life ever, 
I took my gig bag and my fiddle and I put it down in the doorway between the kitchen and the dining room. Usually I just walk it right through to my office and put it in and then go to bed. Uh, the next day, uh, I get a call in the morning. Actually, no, it was the day before I, I did the Woodstock gig. I got a call from Crows. It was like, hey, are you busy Saturday? And it just sort of turned out I wasn't. And I was like, yeah, we need to get somebody. We, we lost our sound man for Saturday. Can you can you come and do sound? I was like, yeah, because I, you know, I could do all that stuff. So I said, yeah, I'll come and do sound for you. I, I, they're going to pay me money. I'll go. And so I didn't know who I was doing sound for. You know, so then I come home from Woodstock. Then that was fallen, dying, dying, you know, falling asleep. And I get up. I'm having breakfast. I get a call from Cyvars. He's like, hey, man, I hear you're doing sound for us tonight. I was like, oh, it's you're doing. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, I want us to bring you fiddle. I'm, think, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, like, that was right in a point in my life where I was like, you know, I've just gotten sick of people just going, yeah, bring your fiddle, man, sit in. And I was like, you know, so I just immediately said, hey, sure, man, I'll bring my fiddle. I can do both. What's the bread? And he's like, oh, well, no, we don't, there's not really any money. I was like, all right, you know what? I'll just do sound. It'll be fine. You know, and I'll concentrate on that and you know, I'll make sure you're all sounding great, blah, blah, blah. So it comes time for me to leave for the gig and I start to walk out the door and I catch out of the corner of my eye in the doorway between the kitchen and the dining room is my fiddle and gig case. Now, any other year or any other day or any other minute, that shit would have been in the office. I would have never seen it. It would have gotten in the car and I would have. So, I, ah, fuck it. I grab it, thrown in the car. I go in. I sit in on the last two songs. And it just so turns out, he has got a, his bass player at the time, it might have been Paul Cusick, I'm not sure. He couldn't do the gig for some reason at the last minute. So he got this guy that he had used once before, this guy Mark Dan from New York City. And he read the whole night on from charts. Great bass player. Hmm. And uh, at the end of the night, he's sitting there and he's just out of the two songs. He goes like, man, you, I love the way you play, man. That's great, man. That's like, you, you just kind of just slide right in. And it sounded like you're part of the band. Little did he know I was for a while. But uh, I was like, yeah, well, no, that's what. He's like, yeah, that's great, man. You, you want to go to India? I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I play in this band called the Dharma Buns, which is kind of like a Tibetan folk rock band. And we got invited by the Dalai Lama to play the World Festival of Sacred Music in, uh, in Bangalore, India, and we're looking for a soloist. You'd be perfect. I was about to start a record, yet another record, and I had all these gigs booked. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of busy and locked up, but you know what, let me go, let me just think about it. I go home, the next day I talk to my wife and I tell her the whole story. And she's like, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to tell a story about going to India and playing for the Dalai Lama when you're like 70 years old? Or are you going to tell a story about like that record you made and those other gigs? She's like, yeah, you're right. So I call him. I say, yeah, man, I'm in. So then like literally two weeks later, I'm on a goddamn airplane flying to Bangalore, India, and I play for the, for the Dalai Lama. We get a call from the Dalai Lama secretary and he says, if you are going to be in Dharamsala sometime during your trip, his Holiness would love to have you play a, a, a little concert for him in his home in Dharamsal, in the Himalayas. We're like, fuck yeah, we're going. We, uh, we re-upped our visa to stay another at two weeks. I'm like, yep, honey, I'm not coming home. There's two guys in a band that are flat-out Buddhists, you know. We go in and we go into his little veranda and they're all like falling down in front of him and he's like, no, 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 no. And he's picking them up and then we go in and we're in his freaking living room, man, playing for him and his secretary who did like four songs. Awesome. And I became a Buddhist. And that was because of Bobby Syrarth. And that whole weird thing is just shit that just happens. Like, yeah. It never would have happened if I hadn't have been so tired that I left my violin and gig bag.
I would have never met Mark Dan. He would have never asked me to go to India. I would have never became a Buddhist. Anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's a good one. And